What are some of the biggest takeaways from the recent Novogratic conference on Opportunity Zones? Find out next. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast, the weekly show where we interview Opportunity Zones professionals and experts from fund managers to tax advisors, from real estate developers to venture capitalists. If it impacts Opportunity Zones or the Opportunity Funds industry, we cover it here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Atkinson. On July 15th, hundreds of Opportunity Zone stakeholders participated in the Novogratic Opportunity Zones virtual conference. Speakers included Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina, Dan Kowalski from Treasury, and IRS officials who authored the regulations on qualified opportunity funds. Joining me today to recap some of the key takeaways from the conference are Mike Novogratic and John Sharetti. Mike joins us from San Francisco, and John joins us from Dover, Ohio. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be great here. Great to be part of it. Thank you, Jim. Yeah, great to have both of you back. Mike, you were on the podcast late last year, and John, you are on the podcast earlier this year to promote the conference pre-pandemic days when we were assuming that it would go on as planned without a hitch in Long Beach still. Uh, so very glad to have both of you here back and together. This is fantastic to have both of you on at the same time. So like I said, the conference was originally planned for April in Long Beach, was supposed to be you know, a very large in-person gathering. Uh, that got postponed and then eventually moved to a virtual platform, very understandably, given the times that we're living in today. But despite that, the, I thought the virtual conference, uh, it certainly had some hiccups, but overall, you know, it was still very educational. Uh, the networking opportunities were still very much there. And uh, a lot was learned. What are, what were some of your big takeaways from the conference as a whole? Well, uh, thank you, Jimmy. And thanks for also being a sponsor of the conference. And thanks for your wonderful podcasts every week. It's on my weekly must-listen podcast list, and it should be for every listener. Uh, yeah, the, the conference was originally scheduled to be in person in April, a two-day event in Long Beach. Uh, Long Beach has a number of opportunity zones. We thought it was a great place in California to hold the event. And then COVID-19 came along and we postponed the event to July, July 15th and 16th, once again, thinking it would be in person. Uh, and then quickly thereafter, we realized that even the July 15th, 16th in-person date uh, wasn't going to work. So we did pivot to a virtual event uh, and we held it last uh, Wednesday, July 15th. And I think the event was, was excellent. We had uh, close to 500, maybe over 500 attendees. And there was a lot of networking possible, a lot of great information shared. And as you noted, there were a few hiccups. Uh, some of the hiccups were, uh, you know, the software, some of the hiccups were just user, myself included. I had to learn how you work through the virtual conference and all the rest. It was more than Zoom. Um, but we learned a lot, shared a lot of great information. And the beauty of it being a virtual event is now we have recordings of all the events. And now even listeners could go in later and uh, register and watch the conference still. So particular sessions and all the rest. So we're excited to have been able to hold a virtual event. We learned a lot and look forward to future virtual events. We've been doing in-person events for over 20 some years. Uh, this was our first entirely virtual conference. We've done webinars over the years, but our entirely vir first virtual conference. So we're really pleased with how it turned out. Again, I want to thank you as well, Jimmy. It's great, great to be here and, you know, when we pivoted to virtual, I was concerned about 
the networking opportunities because for many years we've been doing conferences and one of the main reasons people like our conferences is that they can go to a central place and meet the industry. Um, it, we had some face-to-face -face mixer meetups on Zoom and uh, it was kind of like a speed dating technique um, where we all gathered and, and then were split up um, in smaller groups and it, it was a great opportunity for tremendous networking and shared learning in those groups. So I was really pleased with how that worked out. I just want to also add that we also had, you know, chat rooms and the like, and the chat rooms in some ways were easier for networking because you didn't have to worry about, you know, at a cocktail reception, walking up and interrupting somebody and all the rest, you just could hop into and you're a little bit anonymous, obviously you had your name and such. So it made the outreach maybe a little bit easier for many people. Yeah, you didn't have to actually interrupt anybody's conversation physically, <laughs> I guess, uh, which is it's a little bit of a different dynamic for sure, uh, being in those chat rooms. I thought the mixers were great as well, John. Those were those were really fun for me. And uh, the, how, how the rooms were kind of randomized was interesting. I, I got to, to chat with a lot of interesting folks that way that I may not have otherwise met. So that was that was really great for me. Um, so what I'd like to do now uh, for the two of you is and and for our listeners as well is to just kind of recap not we're not, we're not going to recap every session of the conference but recap some of the key points from some of the sessions that uh, that you put on on July 15th so Mike I'll turn to you you know the first uh, keynote address of the day was from Senator Tim Scott a Republican senator from South Carolina why don't you uh, spend a little bit of time highlighting uh, some of the key points from his address yeah we really uh, pleased to have Senator Tim Scott make time to be able to provide a keynote address to the event. Uh, Senator Tim Scott, as all your listeners know, uh, is the real advocate. He introduced the initial Opportunity Zones uh, bill in the Senate, issued the follow-up bill, and was central to the uh, statute being enacted. Uh, and Senator Scott sh shared with us the role that he played in getting the IRS guidance uh, to deal with COVID-19, the extra 180 you know, extending the 180-day investment period to the end of this year, expanding or halting, freezing the substantial improvement measurement period, as well as, you know, helping funds, uh, you know, build rely on reasonable cause if they're not able to meet the 90% uh, investment test this year. So he really pointed out the role that he played in helping with that guidance. And as you know, our Opportunity Zones Working Group also submitted uh, a number of uh, recommendations to get that IRS guidance. So Senator Tim Scott showed his leadership here. Uh, he also discussed the need now for certain key legislative changes. And he was pointing out during his keynote that because of the pandemic, it's more important than ever to get a two-year extension uh, of the 2026 deadline. And I know that's something a lot of your listeners and our Opportunity Zones Working Group, we've really been sort of promoting extending that uh, 2026 date out two years so you have additional time to get the uh, seven-year hold benefit, as well as make investments in opportunity zones. Uh, the, the rollout of the underlying regulatory guides in and of itself caused a lot of uh, delay and, and kind of lost a couple of years there. And now we have the pandemic, which is then you know, causing us to lose some time to be able to invest. So I think now more than ever, Senator Scott was pointing out the importance of trying to get a two-year extension. And then he also emphasized what he's been emphasizing since he first you know, introduced the legislation back in 2016, how important reporting requirements are. And he wants to see his Bipartisan Impact Act uh, enacted in the law so there are more robust uh, reporting requirements. And the third area that he really focused on was really a call to action to all of our attendees. 
you know, encouraging all the attendees uh, to be vocal and loud about the investments they're making in Opportunity Zones, pointing out now is the time to be reinvesting in distressed communities and wanted, you know, all of our attendees to continue to make those investments, thank them for making the investments, as well as to be vocal and loud and proud as investments that they've been making. So we were really pleased to have them there. And that was, those are some of the highlights. Good. And so just to revisit that potential two-year extension of the 2026 date, correct me if I'm wrong, but just for the sake of our listeners, currently investors in Opportunity Zones have to recognize the deferred gain by the end of 2026. So December 31, 2026 is the latest date in which a capital gain recognition can end up being deferred and, and, and invested into a qualified opportunity fund to receive all of the tax benefits, or excuse me, to at least receive the deferral and the exclusion benefits. Is that correct? That's right. They get the deferral until, uh, you know, 2026. So the deferral won't be very long. Yeah, that's true. It won't, <laughs> if, wouldn't be very long. It's recognized in 2026. I think it's recognized on December 31, 2026. But it's really the, the key it's really the exclusion. in order to get the 10-year hold. Right. The 10-year hold get the 10-year hold benefits such that you'll be able to exclude from uh, taxation appreciation in the value of your opportunity zones investment. Right. So then pushing that date out until from December 31, 2026 to December 31, 2028 would do a couple things. One, it would push that uh, recognition event out an additional two years, but but then it would also kind of reopen the window for the seven-year hold, 15% step up in basis, and it would further push out the uh, five-year hold, 10% step up in basis um, benefits as well, right? That's correct. Good. So let's move on to the uh, one of the next panels that you had. You had a uh, fireside chat, I believe it was, with uh, Dan Kowalski from Treasury. So what were some of the key points, key takeaways from that discussion that you had with him, Mike? Yes. Uh, so Dan Kowalski is a, uh, is a counselor to Secretary of the Treasury, Steve Mnuchin. And as, once again, a lot of your listeners know, certainly your regular listeners know, that he was a key person at Treasury in Treasury leadership to help shepherd through the final regulations. So he helped get through the proposed regulations and then get the final regulations and then uh, helped oversee the corrections to the final regulations. And Dan gave us an overview in terms of what to expect in terms of future regulatory guidance and also shared uh, some insights in terms of data collection uh, and the like. And on the future regulations front, basically said, you know, Treasury sees the regulations as final, they are final, and didn't see any great need right now as it stood for additional uh, regulatory guidance. Uh, and th there was the one exception, and that had to do with the census. And the census is going now, census day was April 1st. And as part of doing the census every 10 years, the census lines themselves uh, end up being uh, altered uh, for many census tracts. Uh, and the question Treasury will have to address for Opportunity Zones is what is the impact of changes in track boundaries on Opportunity Zones investments? And there's a handful of places Treasury could go. Unfortunately, he didn't tell us <laughs> which way they were going, but he just said that the, that is an area where they know they're going to have to come out with guidance uh, as census tracts do change. And the, when you think about a given sort of census tract, it can either get larger, smaller, or stay the same. And then Treasury can either decide that those changes to census tracts don't affect 
the opportunity zone designation such that the existing tracks as they're defined now don't change for purposes of opportunity zone investing, even though uh, this, the census track lines are changing kind of going forward, or Treasury could come up with some blend of the two. Uh, and our opportunity zones working group does have as one is that one of its uh, work items is to survey our group and try to come up with a recommendation as to what we think Treasury should do with respect to uh, census tract boundary changes and how that should affect opportunity zones. But that was one. He talked about the, the census tracts. That was really the big takeaway in terms of future guidance on that front. And then we also talked about data collection and where Treasury was on data collection. And uh, uh, Dan said that he thought the form 8996, which is the opportunity fund form where you uh, have to disclose the amount of money that you've raised and invested in opportunity zones, that he feels that they've gotten that form pretty tight and that they don't expect any changes to that form or any changes to data collection. They might change the instructions to the form if they think they need to clarify you know, what some of the words mean and how to go through and do the reporting, but they feel they have the data they'll need because that form will basically give the IRS and Treasury information on how much capital has been raised by opportunity funds. And it'll also show where the where that capital is being invested by census tract. And Dan projects that there will be heat maps that can come out. Uh, unfortunately, for those of us who can't wait for that data, for 2018, the data for 2018, those return the information from 2018, which seems like a while ago now, wasn't filed until 2019. And it takes about 18 months to do this work. So they don't expect the actual data to be available for 2018 until the summer of 2021. And then similarly, the data from the 2019 filing year, which we're going through now would be the summer of 2022. So he said, that's what we can look at in terms of data. And then he also shared how they have to work with the Census Bureau to get data on a per census tract basis. And they want to get one-year data. Most, a lot of the census data comes out in five-year data sets or rolling data sets. And in order to compare census tracts, you know, pre and post opportunity zone investment and the like, they need annual data. So they're in the process of working with the Commerce Department to try to break out census data in terms of one-year data so they can use that as a metric to evaluate the opportunity zones incentive. I mean, he spent a lot of time talking about how important it is to measure the success of the incentive. And you have to look at existing tracks that opportunity zone tracks that get investment and find good control groups to compare that weren't designated opportunity zones and even finding good control groups will be uh, you know, an exercise, a theoretical exercise. And it's not as uh, simple as finding just a neighboring census track or one with certain key statistics. You have to evaluate it uh, in a number of ways to come up with a good control group. But that's most, those are some of the highlights. Uh, it was a half hour or so conversation, but those are a couple of the key points that I came away with that I thought were interesting. Yeah, that's fascinating. If if you want to really drill down, I think we could talk about this for for several hours. Certainly, uh, d just the the census tract map alone. That's really interesting. That that the lines do re get redrawn every ten years. Uh, I think most of the lines don't get redrawn, but there are you know a handful or maybe maybe a few hundred. I don't even know um, that do get redrawn very uh, very subtly or split in half or made larger or made made smaller as as you indicate uh, and I know one of the things that the working group may be working on is is a proposal whereby you know a a census tract getting smaller wouldn't harm OZ investment but 
you know, if a sense of trek were to get larger and maybe encompass more buildings across the street, for instance, that maybe those buildings would then become eligible. Is that right? Yeah, that's some of what we'll be discussing in terms of what makes the what's the best policy uh, answer for opportunity zones incentive itself. Right. And right. Those will be there'll be that'll be a dynamic discussion, and we also have to spend the energy to go back and look at 2010 and look at the magnitude of census tract uh, zone changes and the like to try to get a good handle uh, on what's uh, feasible. Yeah, you mean comparing what changed in. 2010 from from what the map was in, in the year 2000 that's correct yeah so then then you can kind of know what to expect here in 2020 that's right that's yeah what we're working on now yeah that's really interesting uh it seems to me like maybe just the simplest thing would be just to lock the tracts in place just use the the 2010 map indefinitely for for opportunity zones but um yeah maybe certainly if you can if you can work some more communities into the mix if a certain census tract gets enlarged then maybe it maybe it would be worthwhile that's it's uh something to consider for sure it's also really interesting the reporting that we can expect to see from treasury it's a it's a shame it takes so long to crunch those numbers and and get the reports out to the public but yeah if we could see some sort of not just aggregate reporting on the total number of capital that was raised in 2018 but also if we could break that down by census tract do, do you have any uh any indication of how granular they're going to be able to get because I, I think there may be some privacy concerns once you get are, into the census tract level, right? Concerns. There yeah. are privacy concerns. So there is an expectation that there will be some type of heat map. So you'll see areas that have more or less uh, levels of in- investment. And even those heat maps, you know, they can be a variety of different ways. Is it just sheer dollar amounts invested? Is it dollar per square foot? Is it dollar per population? You know, there's a lot of ways in which you can look at the heat maps and, and sort the data to determine its uh, effect. But one overarching concern that Treasury will have is they can't release information at such a granular level that it might reveal private taxpayer information. Mm-hmm. So the granularity will likely be largely a function as to how much investment is in a given community and to what extent uh, releasing that level of granularity could reveal confidential client information. So I wouldn't be surprised to see, you know, a heat map with various areas that just have, you know, a circle or something that says can't disclose uh, for per- because it would reveal private uh, taxpayer information. We see that in other, there's other areas where we deal with data that we get from the IRS where there's just whole spots where they're just blank. And it's because of, you know, there are so few taxpayers working in a certain area that if you disclosed it, you could reverse engineer who those taxpayers were. So that is right. something they'll have to struggle with, which is why the first round of release of information, uh, I would expect to take a little bit longer as they have to work through all those privacy concerns. And you can plan ahead as much as you want, but when you actually see the data, then a lot of issues will arise that they want to anticipate it to try to address. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Well, I'm very curious, as I'm sure you are and all our listeners are, to see that first report. It sounds like we've got to wait about another year before we get that out, but it'll be really interesting once it finally does get released. Mike, let's move on now to the next uh, panel, which was your Washington Wire or Washington Report, uh, where you moderate a panel of uh, officials from Washington, D.C. You had Alfonso Costa, Deputy Chief of Staff from HUD on that panel, along with uh, Emily Lavery, a legislative assistant to 
Senator Tim Scott's office and her counterpart at uh, Senator Cory Booker's office on the other side of the aisle, uh, Chad Mazel, an economic policy advisor to uh, Senator Booker. How did how did that panel go and what were some of the key takeaways there? Yeah, that was a, a great session as well. I mean, all the sessions were great. The uh, sorry with Alfonso Costa, uh, he also, you know, is the key is one of the the key contacts within HUD uh, with respect to the White House uh, Opportunity and Revitalization Council. So Alfonso was able to share with us the best practices report that had recently been presented to the president. And I won't go into all the details of the report. You know, your uh, listeners can Google it. Uh, but it it is, I will encourage others to go through and look at the report. It's a great resource for examples of community and economic development activity in opportunity zones. Uh, we at Novograd get lots of questions periodically from, is there energy developments going on? Is there affordable rental housing? Is there non-real estate operating businesses? Are there community health centers and the like? And there is a long list of different categories uh, of businesses that are receiving uh, investment. Uh, in opportunity zones that are further in community economic development activity. So it's really, a, there are a number of uh, really yeah, that, impressive vignettes. That, that best practices report that they released uh, a few weeks ago now has a lot of interesting case studies in it. I, I would highly recommend reading it or at least at least parsing through it if you haven't already. I agree, Mike. So please continue. Yeah, and I would also note, tracking back to our data, is what I'm really anxious to see is uh, one of the work streams or five key work streams to the Revitalization Council, economic development, entrepreneurship, safe neighborhoods, education, workforce development. And then the fifth one was measurement and analysis. And in the summer of 2020, uh, there's supposed to be a release from the White House, the President's Council of Economic Advisors uh, of the amount of capital raised uh, by opportunity funds uh, and more analytics on the impact of that capital. So I'm looking forward to getting that report. And we've been doing our own capital raising uh, data collection. Uh, so we're anxious to see what the report says about the impact of uh, opportunity zones to date. And that CEA report, uh, that's due summer of 2020, which is now essentially. So we can expect that within the next few weeks, I would imagine. Do you know how they're gathering that data? Because they're not able to like the Treasury Department, they don't actually require anybody to report to them on a particular tax form. Uh, what, what sources are they using to, to get that data? Do you know? You know, I think they're, they're using whatever data is sort of out there that's sort of publicly available. Uh, so they're looking at SEC filing data. You know, I suspect they're looking at our, the, the data that we've collected and, uh, and other uh, economic information that's available, you know, in interviews and the like. So they've been uh, researching that a number of, uh, of uh, folks focused on collecting data, aggregating it, and analyzing it. Uh, so I am going to be, I am myself anxious to see how it is that they pull together this data and what their estimates are. Um, I mean, our estimates uh, ourselves are, our most recent estimate was about 11.5 billion of capital that's been raised uh, from uh, opportunity funds. And as I mentioned before on the prior podcast, uh, our data collection is is just with respect to funds that are collecting, raising capital from third parties, not uh, you know sort of friends and families, but out there fundraising uh, from uh, third parties. And it's a rolling survey, so we basically are reaching out to funds and the like uh, and collecting that data. And we estimate. 
that the actual amount that is has been raised at two to three, maybe more times that. So we'd estimate the number at you know 20, 30, maybe 40 billion could be higher. It's it's difficult to know, but that's kind of the numbers that we've come up with, and we're you know anxious to see with you know the additional resources that the CEA is able to dedicate, and I'm sure there's additional sources that they have that uh, we don't have access to. So I'll be anxiously looking forward to what their estimates are. Yeah, that'll that'll be really interesting to see that. I'm looking forward to that as well. And then uh, also on that panel were Emily Lavery from Senator Scott's office and Chad Mazel from Senator Booker's office. Did they hint at any legislative efforts that may be in the works or anything that that their two offices are are working on at the moment in regards to opportunity zones? They certainly did, and won't come as a surprise to anyone. Uh, they're both in agreement. We need to get reporting legislation passed. Uh, so reporting legislation is uh, is sort of very important for uh, both offices. Uh, you know, Emily did also discuss the timing extension of 2026 going out two years and how that remains a key goal for uh, her boss, uh, Senator Tim Scott, and, and, and many other members of the Senate. Uh, Chad also talked about, in addition to that, in terms of other legislation, you know, Chad talked a bit about uh, a need for certain guardrails uh, in prospective bills. He, he himself said that there are some tracks that he looks at and thinks maybe those tracks uh, aren't in need of the incentive. Uh, so there was some discussion of that. Uh, another area we actually, during the Q&A part of the session, we got a question about locking in the capital gains rate. And I know that's come up on previous podcasts of yours, a desire to be able to lock in the capital gains rate from, you know, with a year you make the deferral election, have that be the capital gains rate that applies in 2026 or 2028 if we get a two-year extension. And obviously, there's a concern that depending upon how future elections go, that the top capital gains rate could rise. And if you're an individual investor, then that could be, a, you know, a reason to not make an opportunity uh, zone investment. Uh, we've run lots of numbers, and even if the capital gains rate were to rise from 20 to 28 uh, percent, the deferral benefit is still, you know, pretty beneficial at any sort of, you know, discount, any sort of reasonable discount rate. Uh, if it goes up to say 28 percent, and you know, Joe Biden, you know, is suggesting a 28 percent top individual capital gains rate. So I think there's, you know, some notion that, you know, it's it the fear of the capital gains rate rising is. Uh, is more significant than the actual present value economic significance of that, taking kind of the benefits as well. But, you know, Chad said he didn't see that happening, uh, that the chances of being able to lock in the capital gains rate isn't uh, uh, isn't likely to happen. Uh, and I will just say that we've also, uh, at Novogratic and through the Opportunities Working Group, thought that maybe just, you know, having an election to accelerate gain recognition uh, might be a more plausible approach to deal with that question that you would basically be able to elect to accelerate the gain early and preserve your 10-year hold, but recognize the gain earlier at a lower, uh, at a then current capital gains rate if you're concerned about it uh, rising. Just to forego the deferral benefit entirely uh, for the sake of being able to lock in the current rate. That's right. That's right. If, if fear of raising of rising capital gains rate is keeping you from investing, then that would eliminate that fear. Right. And then you would look at it and say, I might as well, I can go ahead and invest now, get the benefits of the 10-year hold, invest in a distressed community, do a lot of good for the neighborhood uh, and, and overcome this uh, uh, risk. Right. And, you know, I, I like to argue the flip side of the coin 
of cap gains rates rising is that it makes the exclusion benefit all that much more powerful, right? No, it definitely does. And we've emphasized that as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And and the the point you make about the the present value benefit uh still exceeding paying current rates even if it goes up to 28%. That's that's a really interesting one. I'm going to I'm going to use that line now myself when I get asked that question because that's a that's a good point you make. Yeah. So those are some of the key points. There was that we had a good uh, lengthy discussion, but uh, but those are the high points from the legislative side. Good. So let's bring in John now because he's been sitting here very patiently. He's been very quiet. Uh, he's still waiting. <laughs> you're still here. Fantastic. <laughs> good. To, good to hear that he's still here with us. John, I wanted to get. I wanted to turn to you now. You guys had a panel with several members of the IRS team that that covered the opportunity zones regulations. So could you maybe touch on some of the high points of, of that panel that you had with them, John? Sure. Yeah. So we were really excited that we had the opportunity to have the IRS panel. Um, we had a number of, there's a number of issues in the final regs that need clarification. Although the final regs were great, they answered a lot of questions. Um, the issues that needed clarification from time to time, you know, practitioners will have the opportunity to have a one-off conversation with a member of the reg writing team uh, and probably re and sort of report that back through the channels. But this was sort of the first time that I know of where we had this sort of national stage of IRS, um, an IRS team that could that could clarify some of the issues. And we picked 10 issues that uh, where we had questions for them and, and uh, they did a really nice job. Um, clarifying a lot of things, some things they couldn't clarify, um, didn't feel like they had the um, authority to give us an answer around. Um, but, um, you know, there was a lot of things that were sort of cleared up. But some of the, I'd say, more important issues that um, were discussed, there was the issue with the 70% tangible property test. And that's sort of when, when you're in this working, when a business is in the working capital safe harbor, and happens to have some non-qualified property, which happens a lot because if a business would sort of have land that, you know, they purchased before 2018 or maybe they purchased it from a related party to get it into the investment partnership and um, you know, that land being non-qualified might be the only asset they have for a while until they spend enough money to on enough qualified assets to uh, pass the 70% test and be qualified. And, and so it was... A little confusing in the first uh, set of regs whether the cash that they were holding for working capital assets um, sort of covered that non-qualified land, sort of a deemed asset purchase. And there were a lot of questions around that. And so IRS made a correcting amendment that um, still wasn't as clear as it it uh, people would have liked. And so there were some questions whether folks with bad assets, you know, uh, sort of failed the tangible property test. And the uh, IRS was pretty clear that the intent of that provision was to uh, address any startup business, which would be like a development type business or any startup company that might have a small amount of non-qualified assets that they wouldn't be penalized for that. So that was refreshing to hear. And I think a lot of practitioners out there will be glad to know that they do have sort of safety um, during, while they're in the working capital safe harbor, that the 70% test is sort of shut off. But they were clear that 
you know, this was in, the intent was for startup businesses. So they, it's not for the, the, the business has been around for a while. Another issue that they cleared up, um, which is, I think, um, important for a lot of your practitioners, um, accountants that might be listening to your podcast, is the issue that we uncovered when uh, preparing fund tax returns during this tax season. Um, as you know, any sort of contribution that a fund receives can be disregarded for up to six months before a testing date. So you don't have to invest the money right away if you if you keep it in uh, certain temporary investments and the like, you can sort of disregard that. But what we found is that funds had earnings on these contributions in, in some in a material amount that, uh, you know, where they deposited those earnings and that cash obviously wasn't from a contribution, but from earnings. And so by definition, it wouldn't meet the, the uh, exemption. And then funds also have organizational costs, startup costs, and the tax laws require you to capitalize these costs. So they have these sort of bad assets that would be in the numerator. And even though I'm disregarding my contributions that came in within the last six months, the bad assets would um, cause them not to satisfy the test and therefore there'd be in a penalty situation. So it was uh, refreshing again to hear from IRS that you could disregard the earnings. It's reasonable to disregard the earnings and also um, the, any sort of startup organization costs that you might have capitalized don't have to be in that numerator, which brings a lot of funds to a zero over zero a fraction, which isn't 100%, uh, and and but they the IRS said you, you could you could treat that as being 100% for your 90% test. So so that was a that was a good takeaway too. One one area that they didn't uh, clarify or or uh, or uh, give us a favorable answer um, in the preamble to the regs, there's a discussion that any sort of non-qualified property, like a non-qualified building that a business may either have, um, you know, because they owned it for some time before uh, 2018 or um, uh, because maybe they purchased it from a related party. And again, this happens more often than not, especially in historic tax credit transactions. Um, there's a discussion in the preamble where Treasury uh, provides that any sort of improvements to that building would not be qualified property. Um, and it's inconsistent with their treatment of leased assets where leasehold improvements are are clearly qualified property in the regs. This discussion in the preamble, although not in the text of the regs, but in the preamble um, gave many taxpayers and practitioners pause that, you know, the whole building might be tainted and therefore um, not counted as good property. And uh, we asked the IRS whether, you know, because, or go back, the reason that they, they provided uh, this discussion, as they said, it, or they hinged on the fact that um, it would be an administrative burden for the IRS and the taxpayer to sort of track these assets. So knowing that we have to track them already um, as accountants for depreciation purposes and the like, we asked that um, perhaps it would be you know, okay if a taxpayer could track it, um, whether the building itself could be qualified. And um, IRS seem to have some concerns about abuse and really concerns about whether they had the authority to make these purchases good assets. And so they did indicate that they're going to continue to look at this issue um, and 
and ask for examples and the like to help understand it a little better. But um, unfortunately, we didn't get a, a positive uh, response to that question. So those are some of the bigger takeaways um, from the IRS panel. And like I said, they addressed 10 separate questions and uh, they did a nice job of clarifying a lot of things that folks had difficulty um, understanding and how to implement based on the final regs. Yeah, fantastic. It uh, practically amounted to another IRS hearing. So now, John, I want to turn to the Novogradic Opportunity Zone Working Group. First, for those listening who may not be aware of what the Working Group is, maybe you can explain briefly what the Working Group is, who who the members are, and what it does, essentially. Um, and then I'd also like to ask you, you know, what are some of the initiatives that the Working Group is currently working on? I know that as you pointed out, there's still a number of items that the IRS uh, hasn't addressed satisfactorily. Sure. So the Opportunity Zone Working Group is a group that we started uh, in the legislative phase of the uh, Opportunity Zone um, legislation. Um, we had a handful of clients that you know everyone was trying to figure out if, uh, based upon the initial bills whether it's something that um, they might be able to participate in, and um, we met um, early on in the legislative phase, as I said, and and actually commented on uh, the preliminary legislation and had the opportunity to even work with the IG during that phase um, and contribute our ideas around around the legislation. And the, the once the uh, legislation was passed uh, in 2017, uh, the group began to grow. Um, we have uh, 100 and, approximately 150 member firms in the group now. They consist of uh, funds, uh, professionals, uh, uh, consultants, um, developers, and intermediaries, and uh, nonprofits and nonprofit community development type groups. So it's a nice cross section of the industry. Um, it gives folks an opportunity to benefit through collaborating with other opportunity zone stakeholders on a monthly basis we have a call and we have subgroup calls um, in the interim uh, about specific topics that certain folks might be interested in um, we talk uh, and we comment a lot on comment a lot on the on the regulations um, we provide technical guidance around issues that might not be so clear it gives folks kind of the opportunity to understand how other other stakeholders are, are implementing the regulations on things that might lack clarity. Um, we discuss business strategies and the like around structures uh, in fund formation. Um, we talk about market trends. Um, we discuss the fundraising survey that we prepare, um, or, or that we do on a rolling basis. And so it's a it's been a very I, I think informative group and also gives our stakeholders the opportunity to network among other stakeholders that might have like issues or like opportunities. So, so it's been a real success for us. Right now, some of the things that we're working on, um, Mike mentioned earlier, um, where we are discussing sort of a good, or what, what the working group desires are with respect to policy around the census tracts. And once we gather that information, we'll draft, we'll draft the comment letter. Um, sort of directs them to what we want to see as policy. And then we're also working on uh, a response. The Treasury 
is seeking recommendations to be included in the 2020-2021 priority guidance plan. And so we're drafting a response around the issues that we would like to see additional guidance on. A lot of them um, will be the same questions that we ask the IRS, even though that they may have answered informally, it'd be nice to have some formal guidance around things. Um, in addition, things that they were not able to answer in our panel. So those are the, that's sort of the main bucket of items that we're going to be addressing with the priority guidance letter. And, and I would just sort of add that one of the real benefits from the Opportunity Zones Working Group from the beginning through now is the ability to share information among the members. Uh, one thing about a new tax incentive is a, you initially need to have guidance from the IRS, and we were very active in making recommendations about types of guidance and the rest, and we have experienced a number of other tax incentives that we were able to build upon. Um, but also, we're also knowledgeable, and re we, we understand that the IRS is not going to be able to answer every single question, and there's going to be lots of areas where a consensus has to develop as to how to interpret various matters. And one thing the working group does a lot of is develop consensus around interpretations of various sort of provisions. And we sometimes analogize it to traveling within the herd. And a lot of the members of the working group take comfort in the fact that the interpretations and the ways in which they're addressing and deal with opportunity zones is consistent with what others in the group are doing so that you know they're not alone with some you know odd interpretation or, or doing something uh, so unique that if the IRS or somebody else were to disagree with that interpretation, you know, they'd be the only one affected. Uh, so the whole, that whole aspect of it, I think, is, is, is very important. We did the same thing when new market tax credits came out back in 2000. I formed a similar group that continues to this day, which is another community development uh, incentive that's, uh, that's uh, more targeted to individual businesses as opposed to being targeted to a broader census tract. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, I agree. That's a very valuable element of the working group is that herd uh, moving with the herd, as as you mentioned. Now, for those of our listeners who may be unfamiliar with who Novogratic is or what you guys do exactly, you know, Mike and I, you guys, we were joking earlier before we hit record that, you know, some people assume Novogratic is a conference organizer, and you certainly are that, but you're much more than that. Could you explain, you know, some of the accounting and, and tax preparation services and other accounting services that that you provide to your clients and why might an opportunity zone project sponsor or an opportunity zone fund manager come to you for 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 what they need help with yes absolutely so we're uh we've been around since 1989 uh which i can't, which is a long time ago now <laughs> but i didn't get any older uh, so we've been around <laughs> since 1989, 25 offices, over 700 employees, and we're you know, an accounting and tax you know, professional services firm. We also have a valuation group, uh, but we're you know, auditors and tax repairs and, and valuation and appraisers for those that are participating in a wide variety of community development uh, incentives. And we were founded off of working on uh, affordable housing uh, namely the low-income housing tax credit, along with uh, other incentives through the Department of Housing and Urban Development through HUD, as well as various state programs for affordable housing. Uh, we also do work extensively in the historic tax credit area, extensively in the renewable energy tax credit area, extensively in community development, including new markets tax credit. And that's how we came to uh, be involved with Opportunity Zones, is when that 
uh, was beginning to make its way through Congress in uh, early 2016, late 2015, uh, we started getting involved. We have a strong public policy group uh, in Washington D.C., uh, so we're very we're very focused on federal and state policy to advance, uh, you know, affordable housing, community development, uh, historic preservation, and renewable energy. And clients come to us because we have such a depth of experience and uh, can come to us and ask for interpretations on questions and the like, want to know how, how what's common in the uh, in this particular niche area. And we have experience with that. And not only can we tell them our interpretation, we can talk to them about where the IRS was on this and, and what recommendations were made and some of the evolution of various sort of provisions. So it's really all about the in-depth uh, expertise that we have in the areas that we really go deep. Well, I just was going to add that we, we have a large transaction advisory practice. We get involved with our clients very early in the transaction, and we provide structuring uh, consultation as well as financial models and due diligence around the transaction. Our expertise around not only the tax laws, but the programmatic laws. Um, help our clients structure things you know for for their best benefit in the transaction so that's been that's been uh, the joy of, of my practice is getting involved very early when these transactions are being structured fantastic yeah Novogratic has definitely been on the leading edge of opportunity zones since uh, the very beginning since before the beginning even since well before uh it was passed even and of course, you are also still a conference organizer, and I know that you have another Opportunity Zone conference coming up here uh, later this year. Uh, Mike, could you tell us a little more about what you have planned? Yes. So our next Opportunity Zones conference, our fall conference, uh, we you know have several conferences uh, every year uh, around Opportunity Zones and a number of other incentives, but Opportunity Zones included. And for the fall, we're currently scheduled to be in Cleveland uh, on Thursday, October 22nd and Friday, October 23rd. And the conference is currently scheduled to be both a social, appropriately social distancing in-person conference as well as a virtual conference. So it's much like kids going back to college in the fall. Uh, we're scheduling our fall events to be uh, in-person where we can, but they will all be virtual uh, no matter what. So right now we expect the uh, conference in Cleveland to be virtual. So virtual attendees will be able to attend just like they attended the virtual conference we just held uh, last Wednesday. And then also there will be an in-person uh, aspect to the conference with appropriate social distancing and the like. So we certainly expect the in-person attendance to be a lot lower than it uh, has been uh, in the past and hopefully will be uh, in the future. Uh, and we do expect you know, many of the attendees are more likely to be driving to the event than flying to the event, but uh, we'll get uh, many of both. Uh, and then the attendance will be lower because we'll want to have the appropriate social distancing. And then we, we also are very aware that conditions on the ground uh, in October might not allow for a, a local in-person event, in which case it'll be entirely virtual. So we're, you know, we're being flexible. And, you know, so folks can know that it's going to be held. It's just a question of, is there going to be an in-person aspect or is it going to be entirely virtual? Got it. So a hybrid model with the hope that you're able to do at least some in-person. I hope you're able to do some in-person. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, we'll find out in the coming months, I suppose. Uh, well, John and Mike, thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to join me and speak with our listeners today. Uh, before we go, can you tell our listeners where they can go to learn more about you and Novogratic and the upcoming conferences? 
Yeah, they can go to www.novaco.com uh, or just search Novagratic. You don't even have to spell it right. It'll probably take you there. Uh, and then you also can go to opportunitiesonesresourcecenter.com, opportunitiesonesresourcecenter.com and uh, go to our website and get lots of uh, information or just call me, Mike Novogratik, in our San Francisco office or John Shreddy in our Dover, Ohio office. Fantastic. And for our listeners today, I will have show notes on the Opportunity Zones database website for today's episode. And you can find those show notes at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. And there you'll find links to all of the resources that Mike and John and I discussed on today's show. I'll be sure to link to the Novogratik Opportunity Zones Resource Center, and I'll also link to the White House Opportunity and Revitalization Council's Best Practices Report that we were speaking about earlier. And uh, Mike and John, I'm going to give your uh, I'm going to give your office phone numbers on there as well now too. So I hope you can expect some calls from our listeners. Please do, and thanks, Jimmy, for everything that you do for Opportunity Zones. You're a tremendous uh, resource for the broader community, and there are many families living in Opportunity Zones that don't appreciate what great work you're doing for them, so thank you for that. Well, thank you, Mike. Thank you for the kind words, and John, thank you for uh, taking some time today, too. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jimmy. I enjoyed it. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by the Opportunity Database. Visit OpportunityDB.com to learn more about Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Zone Fund investing. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and read more about today's guest in the show notes by visiting OpportunityDB.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.